Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is Primetime Politics. Coming up on the program tonight, the Bank of Canada issues a bleak outlook for the Canadian economy as the second wave of COVID-19 puts the brakes on growth. And as the Minister of Finance lays out in sort of broad strokes her plan for the economic recovery. And we'll begin tonight with what the pandemic is teaching us so far. Canada's chief doctor issued a new report today calling for structural change as the COVID-19 pandemic underscores in stark relief the shortcomings in our response and who is paying the highest price. In her annual report today, Dr. Teresa Tam notes that 80% of the more than 10,000 COVID-19 deaths have been residents of long-term care facilities. 19% of positive cases across the country are healthcare workers. 92% of those patients hospitalized with COVID-19 have at least one underlying condition. The report also notes the pandemic disproportionately affected essential workers, racialized populations, women and people living with disabilities. Dr. Tam is recommending structural change in the health, social and economic sectors and more data to eliminate inequalities. She also recommends harnessing the power of social cohesion by sharing more evidence and information to give Canadians confidence to follow public health precautions and strengthening public health capacity with the uh, right sustained investments in the future to handle a surge in cases and non-COVID-19 health issues. The impacts of COVID-19 in this country have been worsened by systems that stigmatize populations through racism, ageism, sexism, and others who have been marginalized through structural or social factors such as homelessness. Reports from around the world show there is a real difference in who gets COVID-19 and how severe their illness is. These differences are not random, but fall along the lines of populations that have historically experienced health and social inequities. The fact is that the impact of COVID-19 is influenced by factors such as income, the type of work we do, how many people we live with, and if we depend on someone else for our day-to-day -day living. Well, let's bring in three members of Parliament now, all members of the House of Commons Health Committee to discuss the report today from Theresa Tam. Darren Fisher is the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Health. John Barlow is a Conservative member of the committee and Don Davies is the health critic for the NDP. Good to see you all, gentlemen. Thanks for being here. Uh, Mr. Fisher, let me start with you. This annual report from, from Dr. Tam's, uh, uh, it's another pretty damning indictment of, in many ways, who we are. Poorly prepared for the pandemic, putting groups of Canadians at risk because... They've always been at risk because they're marginalized or face systemic barriers that they've always faced. So the clear implication here is that as a country, we should be doing a whole lot better. So what's your government going to do about her call to action? Well, I want to thank you, first of all, for having me on today. I want to say hello to my colleagues from the, the health committee, as I always do, and I look forward to seeing them on Monday. You know, I, I want to thank Dr. Tam for this report. Dr. Tam has worked tirelessly, 18 to 20 hours a day, probably since since we first heard of COVID back in January. So, you know, the work that she's put in has been incredible. But we, you know, we know, all three of us on this panel know that we have to find ways to take care of the Canadians that are uh, most at risk, whether they be seniors or racialized populations or folks that work in essential services, um, people with disabilities. We know, and we've, we've taken action on, on an understanding. We, we know what works. 
We know what works in Canada to help us with COVID. We need to make sure that people right. that are in in uh, instances where they don't have the ability to socially uh, socially uh, distance as easily as, as many people do, we have we have to have the the best uh, have to have to have the best for our most uh, vulnerable citizens in Canada. Right. Well, and that's we, we hear- okay. And Mr. Barlow, that's that's really what she's talking about. That there needs to be something beyond this pandemic, uh, because the next time we get hit, uh, the same problems are going to repeat themselves because of. Uh, you know, sort of restrictions and, and barriers within society to certain groups are the ones most affected. So what's your reaction to what you heard from Theresa Tam today? Yeah, I think this is exactly why we, we talked about this last week with our motion to get uh, these documents from um, the health minister to address some of these things that we saw were shortfalls in Canada's ability to respond to a pandemic, uh, why uh, the Liberals dismantled our global early warning system, for example, which uh, the health minister and the prime minister obviously didn't uh, share speaking notes because the health minister said, yes, we have done this and we have to uh, understand why. Uh, And the prime minister uh, was saying, oh, I I don't think we did that today. But I think this exemplifies exactly why uh, we need to study this uh, at the health committee and get uh, access to those documents underlying why the government made the decisions they made, uh, address the areas and the shortcomings that are obviously in our pandemic response, uh, and use those tools and that information to ensure that we build a strategy that provides the best possible outcome for Canadians. And this health minister has failed miserably on this thus far. Mr. Davies, this report does outline some uncomfortable facts about how the inequities in our society have been on display in the pandemic. What do we we need to do with this information now? Well, act on it. And, you know, I I have to say that uh, it's great to hear these words from my Liberal and Conservative colleagues. They've been in government for the last, you know, 150 years. And uh, these problems... Um, have been ongoing for many years, and they mirror what the NDP has been saying for decades. Um, the report just shows us what is tragically already too clear, and that's that the federal government has failed to protect Canada's most vulnerable people during the pandemic. But it also reveals that things like COVID-19 and other health uh, challenges have a, the greatest impact on marginalized populations. And that's why this report calls for what the NDP has been calling for, which is a focus on what are called the social determinants of health. We have to make sure that people have a stable income, that they have adequate housing, that they have uh, new access to nutritious food and clean water and meaningful connections to, uh, to community. And that's why things like when Mr. Harper cut the federal uh, health transfer from 6% to 3% when healthcare costs are rising okay. at 5.2% a year, and the Liberals continue that, this is the kind of structural problem that leads well, to the report that we see here today. Right, let's talk about that. Mr. Fisher, the government's already shelled out hundreds of billions of dollars in the pandemic response, billions more to come. Now, when the pandemic is, is passed and the recovery begins, um, there will likely be an enormous temptation to get back to normal and cut spending and try to get the fiscal uh, house in order. And those problems of inequity uh, underlined by Dr. Tam, they'll still be there. So how committed is your government to closing these gaps in health care by closing the gaps in society? Because that's really what she's saying. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? I'm, I'm so glad Don talked about the social determinants of health, you know, employment and housing and access to social services. Um, we've instituted some amazing services uh, for our, for the public, for Canadians to keep them healthy and keep them safe during COVID. These are 
these are important. And, and to be able to address the social determinants of, of health is going to get us to the place that we need to get. Right. But which is, so to those things you've talked about and the measures you've taken, she's making the case today they need to be permanent, essentially. They need to be permanent and they need to be done by many different levels of government. That's going to be the challenge, is it not? Yeah, and I think we've seen successes like CERB. We've seen CERB, uh, you know, and some people are saying that CERB could potentially be a, you know, a future version of uh, universal basic income. Mm. Uh, that, you know, one of the things that we've seen in the House of Commons recently is some collaboration between all the parties when it comes to the health and safety of Canadians. And although that might have dipped the last uh, in the last uh, little bit, I am looking forward to seeing that come back in the House of Commons because we are at our best when we are all okay. working together for Canadians. Mr. Barlow, how would Conservatives tackle those inequities in society to ensure that in another health crisis, those populations uh, that have been hardest hit this time do better next time? And that likely means making permanent many of the programs that are temporary now. Yeah, I think we would all agree that um, um, it it was a we should have been better prepared for a pandemic. I think most uh, people around the world knew this was this was coming, uh, and we should have had um, you know better infrastructure in place and programs in place um, to address that. And many of these programs were rolled out. Uh, I don't want to say haphazardly, but very quickly. And I, as conservatives, we supported programs uh, like. Uh, like SEBA and like the CERB uh, to ensure that they are there for Canadians. But we also want to ensure that Canadians have every opportunity uh, to go back to work and get our economy back right, up but, and running. But for those marginalized Canadians, we've all we've all talked about uh, people who are at a disadvantage out of the gate and and who have paid a, an inordinate price during the pandemic. Are you prepared as a, as a party to look at making permanent some of those programs that lift those people up so that they get better health outcomes? The, the best health outcome is having uh, a job and opportunities. And those are the things that we want to focus on is getting our economy uh, back up and running. And, and, you know, it's up to the, uh, the health committee to, for, to have those opportunities to discuss what is working and study um, the, the impact that uh, decisions that were or were not made during the pandemic, um, what impact that's had on marginalized Canadians and what are the best steps moving forward. Uh, you know, right. there are lots of opportunities and potential uh, decisions and programs that could be made, but we need to discuss that at, at committee and in Parliament um, before those uh, types of decisions are made. Mr. Davies, uh, how, how concerned are you that uh, the appetite to push money out the door now uh, and, and uh, to, to deal with some of these targeted areas, that that appetite will be gone after the pandemic is gone and people are looking at how to cut costs? Well, I'm very concerned about that if history is any guide. I mean, I've seen both Liberal and Conservative parties pursue policies of austerity. Uh, I saw the Martin government made the biggest, the Liberal government made the biggest cuts, I think, in Canadian history in the 1990s. So um, what we have to do is start regarding these expenditures as investments. So things like building a universal child care system, making sure that we get the federal government back into providing uh, affordable housing, working with the provinces, um, making sure that we have... Um, you know, clean water at every Indigenous community in this country and every community in this country. These things are investments in infrastructure that not only not only are the right things to do, 
but they are key components of making sure people are healthy. And that's, I think, the nub of Dr. Tam's report mm -hmm. today, uh, is that we, we've, if we, if we want to have a modern economy, we want to have a, a, you know, a, a caring country for the 21st century, we have to invest in these very necessary social infrastructures and not cut them as soon as the crisis is over. All right. Uh, gentlemen, time is short tonight, but uh, it's an important discussion, and I know we'll, uh, we'll have more to say on it in the days ahead. But thank you all for taking time to speak with me tonight. I do appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, Thanks, guys. Well, let's get a different perspective on Canada's response to the COVID-19 pandemic and some of the concerns raised by Canada's chief public health officer today. Dr. Andrew Buzari is a primary care physician and the executive director of health and social policy at the University Health Network. He's been on the front lines of treating marginalized populations during this pandemic. First of all, doctor, thanks for taking time to speak with me tonight. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. What is your reaction to the report tabled by Dr. Tam today calling for this structural change in the country to deal with inequities in health care and health outcomes in Canada? Were you surprised by anything you heard? No, I think it's crucial. I think it's a pivotal report. I think this is the sort of work that we need. And I think public health is fundamentally about inequalities and how we can help reduce them and where we've seen disparities uh, take place in our country for decades, for centuries, uh, COVID has really exacerbated those inequities. It has widened those disparities. And if we do not take a health and all policies approach or a health equity approach um, in responding to the pandemic, uh, we will continue to see uh, the mass suffering that we do in the country that's been disproportionately affecting racialized and low-income communities and we'll also be in a situation where coming out of the pandemic, um, we may have even wider inequities. Mm -hmm. and, and that's one of the major fears uh, for us right now. It, 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 I, I'm, let me ask you, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big question, I think, but where does that structural change that Dr. Tam talks about in her report today? Because it crosses so many touch points. Where, where does it have to start in your view? Yeah, I, I think just in one addressing and, and identifying that, through the first wave and through what we're going through now, that it's it's mainly been, and especially in major cities like Toronto, the one I'm in right now, the one that I work in, and the one um, you know where we've seen uh, over 80% of cases uh, disproportionately affecting and burdening um, visible minorities, and we see over 50% of the cases affecting low-income households, uh, and so this is where we see you know race and poverty really driving so much of the hurt, suffering, and the cases. Uh, and so to your point about a structural approach, one, it's, it's to address this and identify that there is a long reach of systemic racism, of in income inequality in the country mm. that has for a long time produced poor health outcomes. Um, but by addressing it and then ensuring that there's cross-sector collaboration, so we can't be talking about a more equitable response if you're not bringing uh, housing uh, and childcare and issues around uh, basic income and income supports into the conversation, sure. into That's, the solutions. Okay, so that I mean that type, that leads me here. Governments have poured billions into uh, into wage protection uh, during during this uh, crisis. Better supports, better facilities in some cases during the first nine months of the pandemic. Uh, I guess the concern expressed by Dr. Tam today is there, you know, there needs to be a shared, sustained commitment 
to long-term funding to reduce the inequities in healthcare. And, and I guess, let me put this to you. How, how do we get past the debate over how much is too much to spend on, on public health? Uh, because some people will say that, well, then other parts of the economy suffer. What's your answer to that? We have suffered so much in our racialized and low-income communities, but, but we as a country have suffered because of our chronic underinvestment in public health. We have not had the investments in public health that we deserved as a country when it comes to issues like testing and tracing and the ability to isolate. And our inability to control the virus has had massive economic consequences. I mean, there's no skirting that issue. Uh, the reality is when you go to the question of how much is too much, we will never be able to see the economy come back or see the economy be more equitable and robust if we don't actually get the public health crucibles down, if we don't get the public health fundamentals down. That will require investment. That will require longstanding investment. And if we don't do that uh, and people don't have confidence to go back around their daily lives, the economy and health outcomes will chronically suffer going forward. As you've talked about, you treat many of the patients who are marginalized in our society and they've been hard hit during the pandemic. Uh, what, if any, improvement have you seen from any of the changes that have been made since the pandemic began? What are you seeing on the front lines? You know, again, we're seeing populations that have long suffered from inaction by various levels of government. We have a housing crisis that was a crisis before the pandemic. We had an overdose crisis in this country. We still do at at heightened degrees, at, at even more hurt. So, you know, it's great to see more of a response, more action, more recognition, but it's not gonna change these outcomes overnight. This is why we need prolonged commitment. And we also need to ensure that people from low-income communities and uh, racialized communities and our black and indigenous partners are exactly that. They are partners in the response and that they best understand what their communities need and the sort of investments we need to be making. So until we really get to that point, it's hard to say that overnight or the last few weeks that we can say we've seen real meaningful changes. All right. Uh, we'll continue to watch uh, how uh, governments take up the findings from and conclusions from uh, Dr. Tam, and uh, with input from uh, folks like yourself across the country, Dr. Andrew Buzari, uh, thanks so much for your time tonight. Good to talk to you. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Well, now let's turn to the latest economic outlook from the Bank of Canada as the country deals with a second wave of the COVID-19 pandemic. The bank announcing today it will keep its key policy rate at the lowest level possible of 0.25% until the economy recovers in 2023 and that depends on the path of the pandemic and whether there are even deeper restrictions imposed on the economy. We're basing our outlook on some particular assumptions about the virus. We assume authorities won't need to reinstate the sort of extensive and widespread containment measures we saw in the spring. But we can expect successive waves of the virus to require localized and targeted restrictions. The need for these restrictions will ebb and flow and gradually diminish over time. We are assuming that vaccines and effective treatments will be widely available by about the middle of 2022. Finally, we expect the fallout from the pandemic will have some long-lasting effects on future economic growth. The very rapid growth of the reopening phase is now over, and we are in the slower growth recuperation phase. We expect fourth quarter growth to be just barely positive, 
weaker than previously expected due to the resurgence in COVID infections. For 2020 as a whole, we expect the economy will have shrunk by about 5.5%. Looking into 2021 and 2022, we are projecting annual growth to average almost 4%, with household spending leading the way. And we also heard from Canada's Minister of Finance today, Christian Freeland, providing the broad strokes of the government's plan for the economic recovery. They'll be spelled out in the economic update, those plans, uh, that's expected next month. But simply put, it involves continued massive pandemic spending until vaccinations get the pandemic under control. The upshot is that we are living today in a world where the risks of fiscal inaction outweigh the risks of fiscal action. Doing too little is more dangerous and potentially more costly than doing too much. Well, Trevin Stratton is the Vice President of Policy and the Chief Economist for the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. He was following the report from the Bank of Canada today and the remarks of Canada's Finance Minister. He joins me now. Mr. Stratton, good of you to take the time to speak with me today. Nice to talk to you. Thanks for having me on, Peter. Look, let's start with the Finance Minister's pledge to keep on pouring out the pandemic spending as long as it's needed. Does the Chamber of Commerce support that approach? So I think part of the debate is, is is that it's become very polarized. You know, on the one hand, you have, um, you know, some people calling for austerity. And on the other hand, um, you have a, a number of people saying that interest rates are going to be low, as, as the governor of the Bank of Canada signaled today on, until 2023, so we can spend unlimited amounts of money. Um, I think in many ways that, that really misses the point, um, which is the return on investment of what we're spending. Uh, you know, certainly all spending isn't created equal and some types of spending will actually have a greater return on investment for the economy, for growth, for Canadians than others. Um, and those are really the, the questions we need to be asking when it comes to spending. Um, but definitely, you know, there are a lot of businesses that are suffering uh, in, in some of the hardest hit sectors, uh, like in uh, in travel, tourism, accommodation and food services and restaurants, um, the airlines and also uh, energy companies as well. Um, and so some of this targeted support is, is definitely going to be useful for some of those companies that almost rely on physical presence for their business models to work. Well, let's I mean, I want to dig into that a little deeper as, as we get yeah. in our conversation. But on that, uh, having said that. So uh, in your view, is the, is the pandemic spending the government's been doing so far uh, providing what you would look at as a valuable return on investment? Is it the right kind of spending so far? So I would definitely agree that having a number of businesses being able to bridge to such a point as a vaccine created or we get the pandemic, the health aspects of the pandemic under control um, is very useful and it will help accelerate recovery. Um, but I think we need to look at the numbers and that's one of the challenges with, with the speech today. Um, so for instance, you know, there was a report that came out from RBC a, a couple weeks ago um, showing that around $30 billion uh, extra went out in CERB payments uh, versus the amount of salaries and wages that were lost in the second quarter of this year. Now, that $30 billion could have been spent on other aspects of, of economic recovery, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's childcare too. Um, and so, you know, definitely looking at the spending and what is the return on it is going to be very important. Um, but that's what is also challenging right now. You know, we have the throne speech. We have this speech today. Um, a lot of economists like me and a lot of people in the business community are waiting for that fall economic update that should be there in November, where we can actually be able to look at the numbers. 
um, and determine, you know, what what is the actual return on investment. All right. So thing. on the numbers, so she's making no mention today again of, of fiscal anchors. And the prime minister said we won't hear about fiscal anchors and what the government is going to tie its fiscal plan to in terms of prudence and, uh, you know, and, and its plan for uh, post-pandemic. We won't get that till much later. She did talk about uh, something today called fiscal guardrails to steer the government spending. How concerned are you that there hasn't been any commitment from the government about how finances will be brought back under control? Yeah, I mean, we're definitely looking for a long-term fiscal plan, whether that's an anchor or a guardrail or, or whatever word you want to call it. You know, I think that that would be very useful just uh, in terms of context of the spending that's taking place and, and how we actually determine the, the longer-term plan. Um, because as we saw from the Bank of Canada today, you know, we're not necessarily looking uh, to, to reach our pre-pandemic size of the economy until 2023. Um, and so we need to, uh, at the same time as we're thinking about supporting businesses and Canadians right now over the short term and bridging them, uh, we also need to be looking at the longer term impacts of this spending, too. And so things like fiscal anchors are, are definitely useful. OK, uh, let's let's talk about the Bank of Canada. You touched on it. Some bleak economic news from the governor of the bank today about how long the economic recovery could take well into 2023. Uh, we saw new information from StatsCan today about how many businesses have been affected. So what does this outlook mean for those businesses and others in Canada? Well, it means, you know, I think the, the, the one thing that the Bank of Canada was trying to communicate is that we're, we're in this for the long haul. Um, so, you know, there were, there were two changes that we saw from the previous uh, monetary policy report from July. Uh, number one is that the economic hit in 2020 isn't going to be as bad as initially thought, though it's still very bad. Um, but secondly, that this is going to be much more prolonged than we also initially thought back in July, too. Um, and so, you know, for a number of those businesses, those ones that really do rely on physical presence, um, you know, they're, they're in this for the long haul. But looking at some of those other numbers that came out today, not from the Bank of Canada, but from StatsCan, I mean, the numbers are are huge and and, and concerning. So at the height of the crisis in, in May and June, uh, there were about 100,000 fewer uh, active businesses in the country. Um, we clawed some of those back in the latest numbers that came out today or from July, but there are still 85,000 fewer active businesses in Canada than there were before the pandemic. And, and let me ask you on that. So, and, and many of those businesses are struggling under the uh, under pandemic restrictions, which vary from province to province, which come and go, it would seem, as uh, health and uh, political officials try to sort of manage where the pandemic's going and how to curb the spread. Um, how does your organization uh, feel about those restrictions and whether they've been applied fairly? Well, we need to be able to live with the pandemic um, in our midst while still engaging in economic activities. You know, obviously, um, it, it's up to health experts and, and public health experts to determine those those things at, at local community levels and at provincial levels. Um, but figuring out, you know, what, what is the safest way to be able to continue to have economic activity or to have the fewest amount of those businesses fail um, is a very important balance uh, that, that we need to find. Okay, let, let's finish on this. So let's look ahead. So uh, in your view, um, as the government looks to, we heard some of that from Christopher Freeland today and from the, the governor of the bank as well, about you know what a recovery needs to look like and what it needs to focus on. Uh, from the chamber's point of view, what does a robust recovery plan look like for, for Canadian business and what role does the federal government play in that? 
I mean, it's getting Canadians back to work. Um, and I think what the way to do that is is having a business-led recovery. Because, you know, most of the jobs in this country are, are in the private sector and are from businesses. Um, and so, you know, it's economists like me, we talk about a K-shaped recovery. There are those sectors that are hurting that are on the bottom side of, of recovery of, of that K. Um, and they're going to need this, this type of targeted support to bridge them through. Um, but those sectors and those businesses that are on the top end of the K, and there are some sectors that have been able to adapt very successfully some of which are, are you know, uh, actually their economic activity is, is bigger than it was pre-pandemic at this point now. Um, you know, they're going to need the types of policies that encourage business investment. They're going to need the types of policies that encourage business growth going forward, too. Um, that's looking at things like tax policies, looking at things like regulatory policy, uh, reducing interprovincial trade barriers. You know, these are things that can have a, a huge impact on our economic growth. All right. Uh, Trevin Stratton from the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Good to talk to you. We'll talk again. Thanks, Peter. And one final note tonight. Don Mazankowski, a former finance minister and deputy prime minister in the government of Brian Mulroney in the 1980s, has passed away. Mazankowski also served as a minister in the short-lived government of Joe Clark in 1979 and 1980. Maz, as he was known, was the MP for Vegreville, Alberta, for 25 years, winning seven general elections beginning in 1968. The House of Commons held a moment of silence in his memory today. He died Tuesday night at the age of 85. And that is all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics. From all of us here at CPAC, thanks for watching. Until next time.